you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 26. Same chapter we were in last week, if you were here. We started a new series last week that's called Instead of You, and it's a series that will take us through our Easter services uh, as we uh, approach Easter weekend. Last week we opened this series talking about the best indicator uh, of our spiritual health is not always in how we feel. Uh, how we feel is not always the best indicator of where we're at in our relationship with God, but we need to dig a little deeper. Uh, we need to allow God to uh, run some internal tests on us to uh, understand what's really going on in our heart and in our soul. And so that's what we're doing in this series is we're leading up to uh, the celebration of e Easter. We're looking at the events that take place prior to the crucifixion of of Jesus, and we're seeing how through these events, God wants to do an examination of our souls, of my soul, of your soul, uh, as we go through this. And the Gospel of Matthew uh, tells these stories of these events that take place in a way that, that we actually see we're, we're actually the ones who are on trial uh, in these events. It looks like Jesus is on trial, but in God's eyes, it's actually you and I who are standing accused and on trial. And so as we look at these uh, events unfold over the next few weeks, we should see ourselves in these stories. I talked about last week. We're going to, we're, as we break down these events and look at them, I want us to see uh, ourselves in these stories. And as we do, we'll learn why Jesus came and had to do what he did instead of you uh, having to go through it. And again, like I told you last week, this would be a great opportunity for you to invite someone new to come to church. Uh, over these few weeks in this series, uh, people, uh, I, I'm going to introduce people to Jesus in a way that maybe they've never thought about or heard about before. And so it'll be a great opportunity, opportunity uh, if there's someone that you know that maybe you've been building a relationship with and you've been maybe uh, ministering to them in some way, just invite them to come because I promise you, you bring them here, I'm going to introduce them to Jesus and uh, share with them about God's love for them and why it is important for their eternal destiny to uh, accept that. And, and so uh, this is probably the most powerful series about what Jesus did uh, and why what Jesus did is is critical for the eternity of every single human being that he created. Last week, we looked at the story of Judas uh, here in uh, chapter 26. And, you know, how we saw that in Judas, you know, we made some relations between us and Judas. And how, you know, Judas is like us and we are like Judas. Uh, and that Jesus was betrayed uh, for you. This week, we're going to pick up the event starting at verse number 36... Uh, this is immediately after Jesus has had the Last Supper with the disciples. Uh, he predicts Peter's denial uh, to come later on. We're going to pick it up in verse 36. And I'm just going to tell you this morning, we're covering a lot of ground. And I'll cover it quickly. be a lot of scripture all out of uh, chapter 26 here. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Uh, if not, the, the scriptures will be on the screens uh, behind me. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, Then Jesus said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. Now I want to stop there for a moment and tell you there's not really much that anyone could add to this that would show us the magnitude of what's taking place here in this moment. Uh, and that's going to be our focus today. We're going to, uh, actually two things, we're going to dig into the magnitude of what Jesus did for us, okay? You know, we're confronted with the magnitude of what Jesus did for you and what he did for me. And then secondly, we're going to talk about how we respond to that. And and one of the first things that jumps out here uh, in this passage is that Jesus doesn't appear to be going to his death with the defiance and boldness that we might expect from a Savior. Uh, In fact, I would argue that if you pay close attention here, it almost appears that in this moment, Jesus is scared and he's weak. And you may push back on that because that's not your view of Jesus that's not how we picture him and, uh, uh, you know, in, in being scared or weak. But Matthew makes it very clear in how he reports the events taking place here that he observed Jesus shaken. He observed him trembling, troubled, and anxiously going back and forth between the disciples and trying to talk to his father, asking God if there was any other way. And so Matthew even says at one point in verse 39 that he witnesses Jesus falling down, face down on his face. And and this is so uncharacteristic of how we've seen Jesus up to this point in his life and in his ministry. Right? Up until now, he's been the courageous and bold one when everybody else was freaking out and scared. Right? I mean, think about it. Even right before this, the disciples are are trying to talk Jesus out of even going to Jerusalem because they know the danger that awaits them there. They know that that it's not a good situation for them to go into, and they're trying to talk Jesus out of going into Jerusalem. And Jesus is like, no, we've got to go. We're going. 
All right, we're going. We've got to do this. It is uh, my destiny to go to Jerusalem. And so we're going there. And, and right after this event right here, we're going to see him with boldness and calmness stand stone cold before Pilate, right? Uh, with, with great resolve. But not here. Not, not in this moment. And I'll be honest with you, I've, I've heard this story all of my life. Uh, and it's, it's not been until I've been studying for this message today that I, I really grasped and understood and saw Jesus in a way that I'd never seen Him before. And so that's been my, my prayer for you this morning. So, so here uh, we see Jesus totally different than we've ever seen Him before in the past or even after this. So what happened in this moment? Well, I believe that verse 37 gives us a clue because it says that as he was praying, it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. While he was praying, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now that word began tells us that it started then. It started while he was in prayer. It began there. He saw something or he experienced something while he was praying that greatly troubled him and greatly bothered him. And don't miss this. It bothered him so badly that look at what he says in verse 38. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then it's almost like he turns to the disciples and goes, So would you please stay here with me? He's troubled. You can tell in this moment that Jesus is at a place that he's not ever even been before. In a situation that he's never felt like this before. Now, we can see in the previous chapters of Matthew that Jesus is not one to overreact. He's not one to exaggerate. He's not a drama person, right? Which tells us that he saw something so horrifying that he literally felt like it was going to kill him right then in that moment. In fact, over in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that he was so grieved and upset that he literally sweat drops of blood. Now people think, look, look at that, some people read that and they don't understand it, they don't think it's possible, they think, you know, Luke must have you know, just been talking about a lot of sweat or something like that. But this is truly a medical condition, right? Which is actually, you know, can be experienced when the human body experiences such stress and strain that the capillaries would bust in their face and in their head. Think about it here. Jesus, who walked on top of angry waves, right? Remember that guy? The guy that walked on the water, that walked on top of angry waves, who calmed the fiercest storms, who cast out demons, oh, by the way, who healed people with, with, with nasty uh, uh, diseases, and he brought dead people that were stinky back to life. This man, huh? And he's so horrified at something that his capillaries burst and he feel like, feels like he's about to die in that moment. And I believe that maybe it's not something he saw as much as something he didn't see. We see in verse 39 here when he calls out to God, 
his father, as he has done so many other times throughout his life, that he gets no response here. Think about it. For the first time in all of eternity, the father was silent. And so Jesus is shaken by that. And he stumbles back to his disciples, almost as if he's looking for some kind of comfort from them because he can't get it from his father. And so he's looking to them to comfort and and help him. But what are they? Asleep? Uh, Asleep. Think about it. While the most significant moment in history is unfolding in front of them, they sleep. Disloyal to the one who had always been loyal to them. And so again in verse 42, uh, we see him go back to the Father uh, again, saying the exact same thing. Father, if there's any other way, save me from this. And again, only silence. So what's happening here? You know, well, the only... Sometimes I just get stuck, y'all. Some of you don't know what a record player is, but mine mine did that a lot. I mean, I'd tape like... it, Depending on how bad it was, you'd tape either a nickel or a quarter to the top of the thing to hold it down. This morning I'm needing a quarter. The only explanation of this is that what had happened in this moment is that God had turned away from him because it had to be that way, right? It had to to be this way. Right here before the first nail was ever driven into his body, Jesus was abandoned by his father. And Jesus staggered under the weight of that. Can, can you imagine? Can you feel? Can you sense what is taking place here? In this moment, Jesus staggers under the weight of that, almost to the point of death. William Lane, who is a, a New Testament uh, theologian, he helped uh, translate and write uh, the NIV Bible. He's just a great scholar that's had a lot of writings. And, and uh, he... he summarized this event like this. He said, This is the horror of one who lived for the Father, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. Jesus in this moment, at this hour, was utterly alone. And some of you have been there. Some of you have experienced this, maybe on the heels of some great tragedy that you went through or during a time of betrayal by a trusted friend or or maybe a spouse or, or maybe during a really dark time in your life. Listen, Jesus felt that. Some of you have been through situations before to where it hurt so bad that you felt like your heart would literally explode. Jesus felt that. This is what he was experiencing. And he didn't just feel loneliness in this moment, but think about it. He felt rejection. 
he felt utter rejection. And I cannot imagine what it must have been like in this dark moment to have your father in a time when you needed him the most to turn away and be silent during this time. I don't think there's anything that anyone could ever say or illustration that could ever be used that would describe the magnitude and the weight of what's taking place here in this passage of Scripture. This is the horror of one who lived for the Father, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude right before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. Somehow in that moment, Jesus experienced the equivalent of hell in his life. He experienced that because that's what hell is. Hell is a complete abandonment of God. It's eternal separation from God. And and as we look at the end of Jesus' life, I always thought what made Jesus' death and and, and all this so bad was the physical horrors of what happened to him. Because, you know, they were gruesome and they were horrible. You know, one of the Romans, they took great pride in the fact that the the cross was utter humiliation and torture to the most extreme. They beat him until he was barely recognizable. His ribs more than likely would have been exposed through the whippings and the beatings. Uh, Scholars say he was probably uh, partially disemboweled uh, uh, during that beating. Nine-inch nails were driven through his wrist and through his feet. A crown of thorns was pressed down uh, upon his head. And he was naked in a public place for all to witness and to see this taking place to him. So yes, the physical horrors of this event were terrible, but that's not what made Jesus stagger here in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was being abandoned by His Father. And that's why the gospel writers, you know, they don't really focus much in on the gory details of the crucifixion. They don't really focus in on that because the physical suffering, as bad as it was, it wasn't the essence of Calvary. The essence of Calvary was being abandoned by God, and it almost killed him before he ever even went to the cross. And so Jesus prayed. We see here, he prayed three times. He prayed three times, Father, if there is any other way, may this cup be taken from me. And his prayer was never answered. There was no other way. There was no other way. One of the accounts of this story says that at this time an angel came to him. And we don't know what the angel said. We don't know what the angel did. But the writer of Hebrews makes a point to say that when Jesus got up from here, to leave and go to the cross. He did it after this moment right here. And the angel came to him. He got up and went to the cross with joy, it says. Because of something the angel said or something that the angel did. So what was it that the angel set before him that is going to make this all worth it. I believe it was you. 
I believe it was me. I believe the uh, angel showed him a glimpse of the redeemed. Him writer summed it up like this. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean. He said, for me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but he sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sins. He took my sorrow. He made them his very own. He bore my burdens <laughs> to Calvary. And he suffered and he died. All alone. There was no other way that you could be saved. There was no other way. This was the only way. And this passage here shows you the incredible love that Jesus has for you. And the terrible judgment that awaits those who don't respond to Him and receive Him as their Savior. And, and so, you know... That brings us to the second thing this morning in understanding the magnitude of what Jesus did for us. How do you respond to that? How have you responded to what Jesus did specifically for you? Well, what we're going to see in these next few verses is that Peter responds in the wrong way. Okay? Look at verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And I just want to stop here and point out for a second that when Jesus called Judas friend, he wasn't being sarcastic here. He was sincere. Even at this point of betrayal, Jesus is showing him that he still cares for him. Even at this point of betrayal, Jesus is giving him one more chance. And, and I want you to understand that if you die and go to hell, it won't be because God has turned his back on you. All right? The last voice that you will hear as you step off into eternity is Jesus saying, I've already been there. I've already taken care of that for you. He turned his back on me so that he would not turn his back on you. Verse 51, with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And we know from John's gospel that this was Peter, right, that did this. 
Verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now, a legion was a term that was used at this time uh, to describe the Roman soldiers. A legion of Roman soldiers would have been the equivalent of 5,000 soldiers. Okay, so 12 legions would be 60,000 angels. So I don't know why we've been singing about 10,000 all my life, but somebody, somebody didn't do good math. And just to give you a frame of reference, it only takes four angels to destroy all the armies of the entire earth. Four. Revelation chapter 7 tells us at the last judgment, four angels will destroy every army on earth. And Jesus had 60,000 at his disposal. The point is this. Jesus had plenty of power. (laughs) The problem was not that he was powerless. He's not dying because they've got him between a rock and a hard place and he can't get out of it. Right, And so he continues in verse 54. If I don't die, then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In other words, this is all according to plan. All right? This is all according to plan. And it was all foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament to happen just like it is happening. Zechariah chapter 9 tells us the Messiah would have to be tra- betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. Right? Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions. Psalm 22 explains that the Messiah's clothes would be divided up and his hands and feet would be pierced, although not a bone would be broken. And there are nearly 300 other prophecies being fulfilled by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And skip down to verse 56. Jesus says, but this has all taken place that the writings of these prophets, these 300 prophecies that were made in the Old Testament, this is all taking place so that these might be fulfilled. But don't miss this. Peter and the other disciples don't see this yet. And so, then, all the disciples deserted him. And fled. Last week we talked about how all of us are Judas. This week I want to show you how all of us are Peter. Because Peter doesn't understand his own condition. You know, when Peter pulls out his sword, he's thinking, I'm with you, right? He's thinking, I will battle till the very end. When he draws his sword, you know, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. Jesus, let's execute some judgment on these bad guys. That's what Peter's thinking when he, he draws the sword. Don't miss this because Peter did miss it, all right? There are no good guys. There are no good guys, and the only way we can be saved is if Jesus is slain with the sword of judgment. It's the only way that we can be saved, right? Jesus, who has every right to use the sword, he has every right to use the sword, he steps forward and he takes it instead 
in your place instead of you. He takes the judgment, the sword of judgment. And so when you think that you're a good person, when you think you're the one that's on the right side of the political lines or whatever it may be, right? Or that there's something that you can do to save yourself that usually results in us drawing the sword of judgment on those bad people, the other people. In other words, when you think that you are one of the good guys, you look down and judge the bad guys, the ones that are bad. The ones that you think are bad. But in Jesus' eyes, there are no good guys and there are no bad guys. There are only those who rebel against God. And thank God that Jesus saves bad people because that's the only kind of people there are without Him. Most of us are like Peter. Right, And we divide the world into our little categories, right? If we're honest, we're in church, be honest. We divide the world into our little categories, and there's the the bad guys, and then there's us. (laughs) Whatever group that you're in, say conservatives or liberals, and I'm not pointing out either side. I I don't give a real which side you call yourself or which side you're on. If you're a conservative, you think the liberals are bad. If, you think, if you're a liberal, you think the conservatives are bad. And we want to use the sword of judgment because we're right. And we're good. And we know. Maybe not a literal, so, literal sword, but we stand in judgment on them because we think that they're bad or they're wrong. Don't miss this. Scripture teaches that there is no you and them, there's only we. And we all needed a Savior. We all needed to be redeemed. We are all bad people deserving the sword of judgment. And the only one who truly could have used the sword against us or, or any, anyone else, he, he, he stood before it and he took it on our behalf. Instead of us. And that's why we say Jesus didn't just die for you. He died instead of you. And so ironically, Peter has a lot in common with Judas. You know, at first it looks like Peter and Judas are on opposite sides here. Good guys and the bad guys, right? Judas betrays Jesus and Peter's defending Jesus. Judas wanted to see Jesus go to the cross so that they could get rid of him. And Peter wants Jesus to avoid the cross to protect him. And think about it. Both of them are clueless to the fact that the cross was why he came. The cross is why Jesus came. Jesus had to take it. He had to take the sword. He didn't come to use the sword but to step under it for you and for me and it was the only way that it could happen. And so here's the deal. True salvation is not something that we somehow achieve because we're good enough or we're affiliated with the right group of people or denomination. 
Salvation is not something that you can achieve. It is only something that you must receive. Jesus went to the garden alone so that he could purchase salvation for you. So that he could bear your sword, drink your bitter cup, How do you respond to that? How have you responded to that? Have you received it? Have you accepted? He he walked into this dark and lonely garden for you. Are you ready to take a step for Him? And you may say, well, Steve, you know, what is that step? We talk a lot around here about next steps. Well, the first step in responding to this and receiving this is to be saved. And Jesus says, repent and be baptized. We're going to have the baptistry full on Easter. Never done that before. But hey, no better time to start. And so this morning as we close, I'm going to ask you, in light of what He has done for you, how have you responded? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as as we close this morning. And I'm just going to ask you point blank, have you received Him? Have you received Him as your Savior? Now that it has been explained to you, how and why it happened you have to respond you accept it in faith believing that he did it for you or you say I don't believe any of it and you walk away from responding when actually you are responding when you do that This morning, I'm just going to ask you, if you want to respond to it today and receive Christ, I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand right now and hold it high for just a moment. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if you know this morning, you've got to respond before you leave here today. Lift your hand and hold it high. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to know that you've responded, and I want to pray for you. Would there be anyone this morning? I see that hand. Anyone else this morning, just lift your hand and say, I respond. I want to give my life to Christ and commit. I see that hand. Anyone else? I see that hand. Several. Anyone else before we close in prayer today? You can put your hands down. Thank you so much. Anyone else this morning? Say, I've got to respond. Today is the day. I'm responding. Anyone else before we go? This morning we're going to close with the time of prayer. and We always allow you the opportunity to come and pray. Maybe you made a decision this morning. You would like to come pray about that. Maybe 
there's a situation or a need going on in your life or your family or with a friend, you just want to bring that situation or bring them to the altar and pray as we close together. As the family of God, we're, we're called to prayer. And so this morning as we close together, I invite you to come. There's a prayer chest up here that some of our guests may be wondering about. It's just filled with names of people that we've been praying for, that they would come to know Christ as their Savior, that they would respond to the magnitude of this love that Jesus has shown us. Maybe some would like to come pray over that this morning, but we're going to close with a word of prayer. I invite you to come right now as we join together in prayer. Would you come? Jesus, we come to you this morning. Uh, with an awareness that what you felt and what you went through in the garden of Gethsemane is something that we will never have to face if we accept you and receive you as our Savior. And God, I thank you for this reminder today. I thank you for uh, how we can almost picture how you stumbled under the weight of carrying our sins. And the weight of our sorrow, the weight of our past, the weight of our rebellion was on you and almost unbearable to the point of death. God, we thank you enough. We thank you so much for loving us enough to carry that for us and to go through what you went through. And I know me and I know my sin and I know my past and I feel undeserving of that and what you've done. But God, you look upon us as priceless and precious and worth being saved and worth being redeemed and our past when you restore us when we accept you and we become a, a follower of Christ and a child of God you make us a new creation your word says that we are then adopted into your family and when we're adopted into your family it says that we are now children of the king of kings <laughs> we don't deserve but we inherit when we respond to your love for us and acknowledge that you did it for us and we receive that and allow you to adopt us and make us a new creation and God there are several here this morning that have lifted a hand that said I'm reaching for you I'm responding to that love I'm responding to that sacrifice this morning and so I pray as, as right there where they're at, as, as they pray, God, come into my heart. I give my life to you. I don't know what that means or where that's going to go, but I know that I must go there with you, and that will lead into an eternity in heaven.
And so, God, I pray that you would give these this morning that have made the decision to become followers of Christ. I pray today that they would have an overwhelming, real sense of your presence in their life. That as, as, as they walk out of this place, they would walk out feeling the inheritance that they have taken upon themselves. The, the eternal life of heaven uh, with you, God. And that as they go out from this place, Satan's still going to be there and he's still going to tell them uh, what they did didn't matter, it didn't count, it wasn't right. But God, I pray that you would remind them greater is the one that is in them than the one that's in the world giving them all these excuses and nonsense. So I pray they'll carry their head high as a child of the King. And God, as they take the next step, the first step is receiving you and accepting you. The next steps simply just to follow in faith and baptism. Believer's baptism, acknowledging what you've done in and through their lives. You said that's the next step, repent and be baptized. And so I pray that you would uh, give them the courage and the boldness to take even that next step in the days ahead. God, I pray for these that are gathered at these altars this morning. I know that there are some situations going on in our church and some of the families to where they're desperate for your help. They're desperate for hope. Some in physical ways that are battling cancer and they're not even able to be here today. And Maybe their kids are here and they're tired and they're exhausted. God, I just pray that you can be what they need you to be for them today in this moment, in this day to help them. That they would know that you love them and there's hope in you. God, there's some family situations that are going on that some can't even share. It hurts so bad. I just pray that you'd minister to them in a special way. That in every situation, you would be glorified. People would see you, that you haven't abandoned anyone, that you're there love and you care and there's hope in you, in that situation, in that relationship. There's always hope as long as we have the hope of a Savior. So today as we go from this place, God, it's not just about us responding. We're overwhelmed today as we've been reminded of your love for us. But God, your instruction was that we take that love into the world so that others might see it and know you as well and accept you as their Savior. And so I pray that as we go out from this place that you would find us faithful, you would find us obedient, that we would be a beautiful reflection. We would be a child that looks like our dad. That people would see you, not that they would see us, but that would, people would see you. And we'll always be careful to give you the glory and give you the praise that you deserve. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. I love you guys so much. Hope you have a great week. Don't forget, we're partnering with Feed the Need next week, and we need some volunteers for that. You can sign up at the Welcome Center on your way out.